Welcome to our second installment of our biblical question and answer tonight. Just as a reminder, um, what we're doing, we started this last month, uh, the last Thursday of the month, basically, we're committing to answering um, biblical questions, or we're answering anyone's questions, really having to do with anything, life, God, using the Bible. It, as the Bible allows us to. I mean, there's some things that we can't know, and we're all right with saying we don't know because God doesn't tell us. But having said that, um, for the questions we're getting, we're use, doing our best to use the Bible to answer those. And just as a reminder to anyone watching, um, this is it, all month long you can ask questions, and there's multiple ways you can do that. On our bulletins that we hand out every Sunday, there's a little spot you can fill out in a, anonymously if you're concerned about your name being on it. You don't have to put your name on it. You can just Fill it out, fold it up, and put it in the info desk at the info the slot, and we'll get it. Um, you can uh, direct message through Instagram or Facebook or uh, through our email um, through the church website. There's a, a way you can submit questions, or even our text group. You can respond to the the text group that goes up every week, and we'll get questions that way. So there's multiple ways you can do it, and we just compile those questions, and then we get through as many as we can each of these sessions. But eventually, we will get to your question. And you're also free to ask follow-up questions as we're going through tonight. Um, I'll get those. There's a text number up on the screen that you guys can text to. And you know, if, we have, if time allows, we'll try to get those answered as we're going through these as well. So um, just to let you guys know who's up here today, um, we've got Pastor Michael Slivkoff, one, our assistant pastor at the church. Um, we've got Eric Curtis, again, one of our elders, our, our men's Bible study leader, and then we've got another one, our, our elders, uh, Will Cancharla up here, and uh, we've assigned them some questions that we were asked over the last couple months, and, uh, and we'll go through those. So we're going to go ahead and start. Uh, I'm going to pray really quick, and then we will uh, get into tackling these questions. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, we're thankful for your word because your word has the answers we need to know about anything in life. If it's not in there, it's, it's not something that we need to know to, to live for you, to know you. Um, if it is in there, it's something that's important. So, Lord, whenever we have questions in life, um, we want to come to your word first and foremost and look at what it says, uh, because it's the one thing we can always be sure of. So, Lord, be with us tonight as we answer these questions from your word, and I pray that, uh, as your word so often does, it just builds people up as, it, as your spirit works through it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, we've got some good questions. I mean, no question's a bad question, but these, these are some good ones. Uh, we should have some fun with this tonight. So um, let's see. I'm going to let Pastor Michael start out. His question is, where does the Bible say that being in debt is a sin? Or what does the Bible say about debt? Yeah, I think I've got the easiest question myself. Um, basically, if you look in Dave Ramsey chapter one, verse one, <laughs> I'm, just I'm just kidding. The, but what does the Bible say about debt? So um, let's start by defining what debt is. I think this is a problem because we tend to think of it in one. Is this better? There we go. My voice sounds deeper too, so I like that. Okay, let's define what debt is. In our culture, usually we think about it as money that we spend on our credit cards, which is a form of debt. But debt in the Bible is anything borrowed that is owed with the rightful expectation of repayment. So if uh, Nehemiah goes into Ezra's room and takes his football, he should give it back. He borrowed it from Ezra. He owes him a football, right, Nehemiah? 
Absolutely. Okay. Um, if someone goes, if you go to your neighbor's house and you borrow his shovel or her shovel, then you need to return the shovel that you borrowed. It's something that you borrow and that you owe in return. And, and you think, if you think I'm uh, stretching that definition, I'm really not. You can see in the Bible, like in Exodus 22, there's laws under God's old covenant about what to do about property that was borrowed. So it says if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it's injured or dies while its owner is not with it, usually an animal, he shall make full restitution. He's got to pay it back. Um, and he differentiates between borrowing and hiring. So if, uh, if an owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it's hired, it came for its hire. So if you're renting something that's different than borrowing something where there has to be repayment, if that makes sense. Um, that's really important to get because it opens for us some categories that help to clarify the question of is debt sin? So I would say that the Bible does not say that it's a sin per se. There's no explicit verse you could turn to that says, thou shalt not incur debt. Some of the ways we can see that is, the, alt, the opposite is that the Bible provides for what to do with borrowing, like we just looked at in Exodus. Um, other positive examples even of borrowing exist. Jesus borrows a donkey in Luke 19, Matthew and Mark, to ride into Jerusalem, right? Unless you want to argue that it was stolen, which you probably don't want to argue, or you wanted to try to say that the guy was donating it, but he didn't. It seems that Jesus is borrowing a donkey, so that can't be wrong. And then further, a really important passage, I think, in establishing this is Matthew 5, 42, where Jesus says, give to him who asks of you, and don't turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So if, if debt was a sin per se, then it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to tell us to be a lender to someone else, right? Um, of course, lending to someone naturally implies that we're helping someone to borrow. Um, and sometimes debt can come in a lot of different ways too. We just, the ones I've kind of listed have to do with a need, like a tool or a football or a donkey or something, but sometimes they come from circumstances that are external to the choices of the person. So if you think about um, 2 Kings chapter 4, the story of the widow, it says, my, hu my husband died and now my creditors are going to take away my children to repay my debt. And Elisha says to her to do what? Go and borrow a bunch of jars that the Holy Spirit was going to do a miracle and fill those things with oil. They'd sell the oil and repay the debt. So she had a debt that apparently incurred because of her husband's death, not her choice, right? Um, and then there was a, a method of borrowing that was going to help them to actually repay that particular debt. Um, and you may see, think of in our world today, people who have medical debt, right? You can get hit by a truck tomorrow, and depending on if your insurance is built a certain way or whatever, you can incur a massive debt that isn't due to irresponsible choices. It's just due to the circumstances that happen to you in life. So I think we have to be really careful with that. Now, having said all those things to say that debt isn't a sin per se, the way the Bible talks about debt is generally not positive. It's generally not positive. In the Old Testament, debt is often associated with the disobedient life of the nation or even the cursed life. Um, so for example, in Deuteronomy 28, uh, 44, enlisting the consequences if they were to depart from God, their disobedience, he says, of other nations, they shall lend to you or the alien, the people who take lordship over them will lend to you, that is to the Israelites, but you will not lend to them. He shall be the head, you shall be the tail. So indebtedness was gonna be a consequence of their um, disobedience from God. Conversely, earlier in the chapter, Deuteronomy 28, 12, when he's talking about the blessings that would follow from obedience and faithfulness to God, he says, the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the works of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, again, being 
the, the originator of a debt, you're giving a lending uh, money out, but you shall not borrow. So lending and um, debt were associated with obedience and disobedience, depending on which side you're on. And then Proverbs 22.7, a real classic, <laughs> says that the borrower becomes the lender's slave, right? It's a bad casting. And, and most of us are like, mm, yeah, that checks out. I've definitely been in a place of debt and I don't love that. I'm paying money every month and feel kind of like I'm, in, I'm in a slave to the Visa card or you know, my student loans or whatever it is. And, and our culture really has a problem with indebtedness, uh, from our government all the way down to many of us too. And so a lot of us have walked through that, that road. I wanna deal with one more verse that some people may be thinking of if they're sort of just, if you're arguing with me in your mind, you're probably thinking of Romans 13, eight, the literal translation of which is, owe nothing to anyone except the debt of love. So some people say, well, that, that verse clearly prohibits debt in the life of a believer. The NIV translate that in a helpful way. It's rare that I say those words together. <laughs> but the NIV translate in a helpful way. It says, um, let no debt remain outstanding except the debt of love, which seems to put together all the biblical data to say that um, we're not to live a lifestyle of indebtedness. So sometimes you can think of that, or maybe you've been through a period in your life where the way that you took care of your life, the way you funded your life was with your credit cards or something like that. You live this lifestyle where you're just constantly behind the eight ball and chasing those things. And I would say that if someone is by choice choosing to just live in debt, that's probably not God's will for your life. But I don't know that it'd be so much of a condemning thing as it would be from this angle. The language of salvation altogether is Christ coming in and paying a debt for us, right? To release us from a debt we couldn't pay and to set us free from slavery to freedom. So Galatians 6, or excuse me, um, oh shoot, it's Galatians, Galatians 5. Um, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, don't be subject again to yoga bondage. So just as a general principle for the believer, we're not supposed to go out and try to put ourselves into positions of slavery. That may sound easy to think about, but we don't always think of debt in that way, but it's sometimes characterized that way. So I think a better translation of Romans 13, 8 is he's saying, don't continue in debt. Don't let debt remain outstanding. So that leads us to some practical things um, that I think get to the heart of the matter. So debt, although it may not be sin intrinsically, may be problematic. So the questions I need to ask myself are, what are the biblical principles of wisdom that apply to the choice I have? What is the spirit leading in my own heart about that thing? And asking this question that I think is really important. If I don't have it, is it because God has chosen not to give that thing to me? Reason I ask that, Psalm 8411, Psalm 3410, other places say that no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. God is a good gift giver, right? He wants us to ask him for things. God gives good things to his kids. Sometimes there's times where he's withheld something from us, even for a season, because it's, that's the best move. And in our culture, I think one of those issues, and I'm really speaking to myself, is um, there've been times where I'm like, I want that thing, I'm laying in bed, I'm on Amazon, I'm gonna buy it. There's no, um, and it may, if I don't have the money for that thing, then it might be like, hey, are you really asking the Lord? Are you trusting him? Or are you going beyond what he's provided for this thing that you want? Now, I realize you get pretty legalistic about that, but I'm just saying, I think you can look at our culture and see where a lot of times people are just following the impulses that they have and making that happen. Whereas believers, we're supposed to ask the Lord, hey, you're my provider. Is this the direction that you want me to go? So, where does this play out? Obviously, I think there's, there's cases to be made where things like buying a home, it's very rare that anyone has saved up, you know, a few hundred grand to just buy a house for cash. Um, and their intention in taking out that debt is not to stay in debt, 
but to no, let no debt remain outstanding. They're working their way out of that. Sometimes people do that with student loans. There's a number of different places where debt may be a very appropriate tool, but we wanna weigh that against, hey, Lord, is this gonna make me a slave? Is this something that you just haven't provided for me? I'd, I'd pray that through and I wanna walk in freedom. That's my general goal. So anybody out there that I just blasted you all, if there's questions on that, I'd be happy to try to answer them. But the short version is no verse that says it's sin per se, definitely could be problematic, a tool to be used judiciously under the wisdom and the spirit of God. Amen. Anyone have anything to add? I th Something that Michael has shared um, with us several times is that there's two, like, is debt a sin? Well, it's not, a, it's not necessarily a sin per se, but like what you've said in the past is, I wouldn't say it's a sin, but it's a more of a matter of, is this wise? We have like questions of, is this a wise thing to do or unwise thing to do, or is this just flat out sin? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think any of us would point to someone who has whatever kind of debt and say, you're in sin, you know, but we might be able to either look at ourselves or think of someone we know and go, I don't think, you know, putting that thing on your credit card is very wise, mm -hmm. you know, or, or, you know, for whatever, whatever it might be. So, Can I, oh yeah. I meant to say this and I didn't. So my own, I, I, one of the reasons I was interested in this is something I dealt with personally. So I had gotten out of debt, paid off my student loans, whatever. And, and then I bought my house, um, which required a loan, of course. And then I had a little bit of savings to go with that. And then I lost my roommate and my um, neighbor who's, I own a duplex. And being a pastor is not a great way to make a lot of money. I'm not, that's not a plea for money. I'm just saying, this is not a great way to get rich. Um, and so I was using those things to pay for it. And when they moved out and I had to pay for my old house to fix it up, I didn't really, I prayed, Lord, help me do this. I didn't own a hammer. I was an idiot, you know, but I didn't really ask him if I should be doing the things I was doing. And so I was just charging everything at Home Depot and I had a deep relationship, let's just say. And I got into a huge debt hole. Like I was probably 20 some grand of debt um, because I was bleeding money both ways, you know, and loss of income and spending. And so it was really, I have a really strong testimony that I would love to share with anybody that wants to know about um, God's faithfulness. I really felt like as I prayed through that, began repenting and saying, I got to change some things here. Um, and watching his provision, his faithfulness was so prime for me. It's one of my favorite stories of faith of God just coming through for me. So yeah, but definitely looking at a place and going, look back and going, hmm, I don't think I was wise there. I don't think I asked him. I just assumed I just needed to make it happen, swipe the card. So mm. yeah, I like your point about wisdom, Eric. Amen. I remember, uh, I remember <clears throat> this is an early Christian. Um, I met up with Michael many times and oh, I remember he had this, uh, that's right. yeah. you had a Subaru, right? I did. You had a Subaru and it was a nice car and I mean, didn't have any problems. But I think it was just months later, he's like, I think I'm going to sell it or give it back or I don't know what you did, sold, but yep. you sold it. And it really made, made me change my, or at least think about debt in that sense. It's like, oh, this guy's got a nice car. Like, this is what we're supposed to do, get a nice car. You make payments on it. And, but, you know, now the Lord's given you a lot more cars than you've ever wanted. <laughs> but, but, but the idea of just, um, of, you know, just having less debt, and it was uh, something I remember. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to move on my question because it kind of ties in. Apparently, Michael likes to lay in bed on Amazon and buy things, so we're going to talk about phones <laughs> oh, no. and social media <laughs> and addictions. Um, <laughs> really quick. Go ahead. <laughs> it's a good way to fight covetousness. Is just, just buy it, and you won't covet it anymore. <laughs> 
All right. So the question I got, um, it's kind of a little longer. It says, one thing I haven't heard much teaching on is phone, social media, internet addiction, or it being a distraction to the point of idolatry. I'd love to see it discussed as it is something many of us are trying to navigate as individuals and parents. Seems to be one of the bigger issues of our time. I think it could be good, especially for younger people who don't tend to question it because they've grown up with it in their lives and also good for us parents because it can become an easy babysitter. Satan is so good at the subtle deception and we're really good at lying to ourselves too. It just seems to be something that's sinking its claws into us. All right. So um, first, I guess, whenever I'm trying to find biblical guidance on a topic that um, what I would is what I would call not black and white in that obviously there's nothing mentioned in the Bible about social media or cell phones, the internet, because they didn't exist at that time. But whenever I'm trying to find some sort of biblical guidance on something like that, I'm going to look at or try to find biblical principles in God's word that I know apply to it in some way or another. And typically... What, how I figure that out is in my own life, in those things. Like, what are some of the things that I know that this led to that have been detrimental at times or that I've, I've had to be careful of? And so this list I, I made today is by no means all-inclusive in that there might be additional things that you guys can think of. Maybe these guys will point them out tonight. But rather, these are things that personally I've experienced having to do with this topic. And so they're just kind of what came to mind to kind of talk about when I'm addressing it. So first and foremost, I just want to talk about potentially what, what are the benefits? Like what, what's a benefit of social media, cell phones, um, you know, internet, just that kind of thing? Um, well, obviously, communication has been made very simple now. Somebody just pointed this out to me when I was over in the UK. They, they texted me about something like welcoming me back, and I wasn't going to be back for a couple of days. And I just responded, oh, I'm still here. I'm going to be back in a couple of days. And they're like, do you realize, like... 80 years ago, this would have took two months to go by ship, this message. And, you know, it was just one of those things where it's like, yeah, you know, like the, the ease of communication, staying in touch with people, talking to them, conversing with them. And along that lines, um, it's an easy avenue to minister to people in the name of Jesus. Basically, it's an easy way, uh, a quick way, an efficient way to get the good news of the gospel and God's word out to a great deal, deal of people. And in some cases, a way that no one else would hear it or they wouldn't hear it any other way. And I've had multiple instances of that where somebody shows up at church because they saw us online and they, in their minds, thought weird, church was a weird thing, it was a scary thing, and they saw it online, they're like, that doesn't look that weird. And actually what they're saying is making sense to me, so I'm gonna come check it out. And, um, or just people that like, I mean, straight up, they, they came to know the Lord through watching a sermon online. You know, those type of things happen all the time. And so... Obviously, along the lines of when we're doing things for God's glory, I mean, the social media, the internet, you know, like your phone, like those, those things can all be used for God's glory in, in, in the right means or the right context, if you will. And quite honestly, because of those things, this church is able to broadcast the word of God to multiple nations every Sunday very easily, free of charge, you're right? So why wouldn't we take advantage of that? So there, there are... You know, and I know people might come up with other benefits, but that's just kind of one of the main ones. I mean, in our mission as Christians to take the gospel to all ends of the earth, it's made it very easy to do that, okay? Um, now I'm going to get into just kind of some of the risks. And, and again, these are personal things I've experienced in my own life. Maybe they're not a problem for you. Maybe they are. 
but they're just things that, you know, like in answering this question I thought of. So um, social media, you know, different apps, you know, games on your phone, internet, whatever. All of those things, like anything else in our lives, can become an idol or they can be susceptible. Now, a good definition of idolatry is, is when something takes the place of God in your life or distracts you from him. Exodus 23, if you guys are familiar with the 10 commandments, the first 10 moral commandments God gives the Israelites, the first thing he says is, you shall have no other God, God's little g before me. And really back then, you know, one of their main issues was we're actually worshiping false gods, which isn't so much of an issue for us nowadays, but we can very easily let things in our life become in the sense of false God when they take the place of God or they distract from him. And that would also include, um, you know, in, in letting it become an idol in your life, it distracting you from the things that God has given you as ministries, like your family, um, you know, whatever else, your job, things that God's given you to be faithful with and you're so consumed with the, you know, your, your phone or the internet or, or the different multiple things that you do on that, that it distracts you from investing in those things because you only have so much time in a day. I often say that free time doesn't exist in my life because all of my time is, is divvied up amongst the different responsibilities God's given me. So if I'm gonna make time for something else, I gotta take it away from something. So, you know, I gotta be really prayerful and cautious in how I do that because I wanna do the things God's called me to and I wanna do them well. And so any, you know, we're constantly juggling that. And so this issue or this topic can very well become an idol in your life in that it can take away from God and the things that God wants you to be doing. Um, So a telltale sign uh, of it being at an unhealthy level in your life can be that in your mind, you can't go without it. Uh, One of the things that when I fast, I typically do is I, I cut out social media, I cut out you know, my phone as much as I can um, and just out of my life altogether because I want that focused time on praying and, and, and seeking the Lord. And I know that that consumes a, a bit of my time. And it always seems like every time I do that, it's so refreshing to have the chunk of free time that it gives me in that I, I go back to a lot less than what I did, I had before in that, like basically the things that I'm utilizing on my phone or the apps I'm using, I, I decrease them. I get rid of something. Maybe like the first time I did that, I got rid of Twitter. Right? And then it, it's become really to the only things I keep or I try to do on my phone are ministry related things, things that I, I, I either broadcast information about the church on or, or um, something that allows me to stay in touch with, with people from the church or you know, um, different missionaries, whatever, those type of things, like ministry-related stuff, because quite frankly, I've just come to realize that there's more valuable things I can be using in my time with that it distracts from. And so if it's not ministry-related, I don't really need to have it. That's kind of where it's gotten for me. Now, I always think of that verse in Matthew six twenty one where Jesus says, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think those two things kind of, are always, they're telltale signs too in that what he's saying there is like, what, whatever you treasure, whatever you invest your time in, that's the things you're gonna love. So if you love your phone, if you love social media, if you love games, you know, those are the type of things that you must be investing a lot of time in. 
And you gotta be careful that if they're taken away from the Lord or other things, that you haven't become inadvertently addicted to that. And, and again, it goes back to like, if you feel like you can't live without it, that's a good telltale sign that maybe it's on an unhealthy level in your life. Okay, so that, that's the first thing. Like, it can lead to idolatry, which a lot of, pretty much anything in life can do that, even good things. I mean, it can be a perfectly good thing, but we let it get to an unhealthy level because it pulls us away from God and the things he wants us to be doing. So the second thing is it can encourage self-glorification. Now, what I mean by this is, first and foremost, Jesus is trying to teach us the opposite of self-glorification in that he's, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we're to do everything for the glory of God, or we're to live for God's glory. We want people to look at our lives and see God. We want, us, we want them to see God honored by our actions and the things we do. We're not looking for self-promotion. We're, we're trying to promote Jesus, if you will. And a lot of social media, the heart behind it is the opposite of that. It's self-promotion, right? Like apps like Instagram and Facebook, I'm not saying that's all they're used for, but a lot of them are about buy my product, like me, follow me, be like me, all right? So it's counter, that's what the culture kind of teaches us, but that's not what we're trying to be as Christians. We're not trying to glorify ourselves. We're not trying to promote ourselves. We're trying to promote Jesus. So the, the pitfall or the risk is that you get kind of caught up in that and you start inadvertently maybe at first, but you're, you're doing the opposite of what God's trying to teach you. Now, having said that, there's a benefit to God trying to teach you to not self-promote or, or live self-glorification and to seek his glory and only his glory because inevitably, and this is the third thing, is that um, it can lead to us comparing ourselves to other, others. Basically, self-glorification leads to comparison with others to see how we measure up to them, all right? Which, when we do that in such a, a public setting, is like online, or like through TikTok, through these different things, inevitably, you're opening yourself up to people's criticalness and criticism because you're putting yourself out there and there's always gonna be critics. I mean, no matter how good you are, that's just the way it works. And even if there's only a few, those voices are always the loudest and they're discouraging, right? See, when we live for God's glory, what he's trying to teach us is that it only matters what God thinks of you, all right? Find your identity in God because you can be sure of that identity. You can be confident in that identity. You don't have to wonder how he feels about you. And it releases you from worrying about what other people think. And we spend our whole lives trying to learn this as Christians, right? So um, in a sense, like the, the idea of some of these social media platforms that we can get consumed in, they're, they're kind of promoting the opposite of like, and, 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 and part of it too is that they're, when you're comparing to some of these things that you see on there, they're promoting a fake sense of reality, right? Uh, it, it, maybe you guys know what I mean in that the people that are shown on there are photoshopped. It's not even real images, right? Or their homeschooling looks perfectly perfect with no kids arguing, or their families look perfect, or their marriages look perfect, or wow, look, like my issue like, can be, look at that church, it's so perfect. Man, there's no flaws in anything. That guy preaches so well. He's like, it, it's, it's like the snippet of this like perfectly timed, like, like convicting statement, like perfectly presented. You know, that, that's, the, that's what they put on there. Nobody's gonna put the bad things. They, by and far, they put the good things. 
And so it gives you this false sense of reality. And when you see that, you could never live up to it because it's not really real how real life is. And it discourages you, you know, like it, it's discouraging and stuff. So again, they, these are just, you know, potential negative things that we subject ourselves to. Um, you know, I always think of John 21, 22, when Jesus, it's, it says here, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is, who is that or who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that, that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And I love that because it just shows, Peter shows our tendency to look at other people and, and kind of measure ourselves against them. That's our natural tendency. And, and what Jesus says is like, no, no, don't do that. Just focus on following me. Focus on the identity I've given you. Focus on what I've called you to do. You don't need to worry about anyone else, all right? Because that's not gonna lead to good things. So again, that's, that's another consequence that, um, or a potential risk that, you know, the, that it can lead to kind of the things that we see in social media and on your phones and the different apps and, and internet and stuff. Um, and then the last thing that came to mind was just that it gives us easy access to view things that are harmful or can be harmful to us. And it gives you access to do it in a private setting, which can be even worse because you fool yourself into thinking you're hiding these things when you're not hiding anything from God, maybe from the people around you. But um, um, it might lead you to, to, you know, even to a greater degree kind of partake in some things that you know are bad for you that aren't good. I mean, pornography for sure, but I would say even like with the, the algorithms they have, which I don't understand all this stuff, Marcus is the one to talk to, but the AI and all this, it's like if they know you're a guy, then they're gonna put ads on your feed that show things that would be attracted or that are attractive to a guy, like women half-dressed or whatever. This, this is like what they do. And you can add filters and you can add security measures that kind of filter this out, but it... it almost doesn't filter it all out. And so as you're scrolling and you're not even looking up this stuff, there's things that pop up, you know, every now and then you're just like, what the heck is this? And you're not even trying to subject yourself to it, but it's something that you shouldn't be looking at and can lead you to look and then like look a little longer and look a little more. So you're, you, you're exposing, you're, you're even inadvertently exposing yourself to things that could be harmful to you. And then another thing that I've, I've found this personally too is that it opens you up, especially like social media apps like Instagram and Facebook, they open you up to other people's business and it can affect how you view those people. And if you, like, you're scrolling through and you're reading something, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that person posted this or said this or dropped this F-bomb, they're a Christian, you know? And, and before you know it, instead of thinking the best about people as we're supposed to do, like in a loving way, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 7, we're thinking negatively of them, you know? We're judging them even. And, and so... You know, these are all things, again, that I've had to repent of, I've experienced, and in, in, in kind of, you know, what's gotten to the point with me that I really try to use social media only for, um, you know, basically ministry purposes and try not to scroll and try not to, you know, stay on there too long because all these things have a way of rearing their ugly heads if you do. Now, going back to that question, it seemed like the person was asking kind of from a standpoint of a parent, like, so, you know, again, the, I, I know that sometimes as parents, we want a black and white answer because that makes it really easy for us. Like, tell me that my kids shouldn't be on this. And it's like, well, I you know, a lot of the things when we're dealing with things in life, it's not like that. We've got principles and we need to be led by God. 
And we need to observe as parents, we're responsible for training up our kids in the way they should go, according to Proverbs 22, 6. And that involves constantly evaluating what is beneficial for them and what is not beneficial for their well-being from a spiritual standpoint, first and foremost, uh, physical, emotional. These are things that we're constantly watching in our kids. And we're also understanding that as they grow up, they're exposed to different things, maybe, and they're more prone to stumbling on on certain things. So it's a constant thing of, of seeking the Lord and looking for wisdom. And, and, and then even as they get older and more mature, involving them in those decisions. I can think of one instance with one of my boys where we saw some harmful behavior that was coming from our perception, uh, perception a result of his playing video games and, and, and kind of being consumed in that. And we brought it to his attention and we said, you should really prayerfully think about, you know, if this is beneficial for you to keep doing this because these are the behaviors that we see. And he did that and he came to the own conclusion of like, like being convicted and go like, well, I'm just gonna sell my Xbox. I, I see what you're saying and I'm just gonna get rid of it completely. Like, like I talked about on Sunday, I'm gonna cut it out of my life. I realize that it's a bad thing. And he did that for like several years. And now that he's older, he's getting back into video games, but you know, it's we're watching just to see if those same harmful uh, patterns kind of pop up from, from that. But all that to say is, you know, that, that's constantly what we're doing. And, and while our kids are under our, ho- under our roofs and, and we're in charge of them, sometimes we have to make those decisions for them. You know, if we see harmful things that are coming as a result of what they're doing, whether it's social media, internet, or anything else. And so as a parent, that's our responsibility. Now, for us individually, we're responsible for our own actions. So if we find ourselves susceptible to any of the risks or anything else that God's word talks about that's detrimental or can be detrimental to us as a result of using our phones or being on the internet or you know using different social media apps, then it's our responsibility to cast those things away. Just even as I talked about on Sunday, instead of letting them linger and continuing to cause us to stumble or being there is an, for an opportunity to stumble. And maybe that's for a season you know, just cutting something out. You know, I'm not saying you like you cut it all out. You know, that it just depends. But maybe it's for a season. Maybe it's just to see because you, you have that sense in your mind of like, I can't live with this. That's not good. Or I can't live without this. This isn't good. So I'm just gonna cut it out, you know, because I don't want anything to be like that in my life. Um, and, and, and see how that goes. Or, and then maybe introduce it gradually or whatnot or set limits. Maybe it's having your spouse or somebody else hold you accountable like, you know, hey, you know, you're, I, you're on, it's been pointed out to you, you're on your phone all the time. You're at your phone at the dinner table. You're at your phone at home. You're never hanging out with the kids. So it's like, you're at, okay, well, point that out to me because I don't even know I'm doing that. And like, you make a rule, like where it's just like, all right, when I'm with my family, I'm not gonna get on my phone. I'm not gonna surf the internet. I'm not gonna look at Facebook, whatever. It's, it's something like that. You like, you're, you're setting limits to kind of hold yourself accountable. And I would say even if it's like something that's full-blown addiction, and this is something, sometimes we think of like drugs and alcohol. We don't really think of like, like internet, like, but it can, you can be addicted to it just like anything else in your life. And we have like, there's resources at the church. If you don't have a brother or sister you can confide in, we've got like breakthrough. And that's what some of the people there like are talking about. They're there to, in this safe environment to just admit, hey, I'm really struggling with this. I need to be held accountable. And they're there for each other, to pray for each other and to like say, hey, how's it going with that addiction? Or, you know, to help each other through these things and walk in the freedom Christ has given us. So there's lots of different avenues there. Um, but at the end of the day, 
It's important that we're abiding in Christ, we're closer with Christ so that we can walk in the spirit instead of, of our flesh. That's the whole idea, being sensitive to God. If he's telling us this thing is not good for you, you need to let it go, you need to get rid of it, and us listening and obeying to that. Amen? Amen. Do you guys have anything to add to that? <laughs> Just that any time I've ever been addicted to anything, like, oh yeah, I could stop that whenever I wanted to, no big deal, until I actually tried to stop. And so, like, sometimes, even with my phone, like, I don't think I'm addicted to my phone, but if I leave my phone in my pickup and I'm, I go somewhere or I leave it at work or I leave it at home or whatever, it's like, oh, it's like, like, when you have it with you, oh, it's no big deal. I could set it down anytime. But then when it's not with you, then it's a big deal. And I would just, man, if you think maybe you, like, have a problem with that or whatever, leave it in your car. When you go out to dinner with your husband or your wife, Leave it at home, you know, or leave it at home one day when you go to work, maybe. I don't know, like something, just see, see how it affects you. And if it affects you, like, a lot, then maybe there is a problem. <laughs> I don't know, just a thought. I like what you said about um, during week of prayer and fasting. I think that's something that I also do is try to limit phone usage uh, during that time. And it's beneficial for everyone it just you don't realize how much time you're actually on your phone i mean you get sometimes i get reminders on my phone says you've spent x amount of hours Mm -hmm. this week i was like i could have got paid for that if i was (laughs) doing work you know like that's kind of where my mind goes but but just the you don't realize how much time you're on it i mean it's one thing yeah it's you know using work as an excuse i've done that before it's like hey i have to have it i gotta i gotta make sure gotta make sure that Someone's calling me. Somebody needs something. Like, but next question. This is for Eric. Oh, man. Is birth control biblical? <laughs> How do I know if God wants me to use birth control with my spouse? <laughs> Would anyone from the audience like to answer this one? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. Um, yeah, is birth control biblical? We, I think we've all probably seen or heard about different um, religious groups who have big families, believe in having, you know, like tons of kids, don't believe in birth control, and they're like, oh, no, we, wouldn't, we uh, don't want to limit what God is doing, and we, we want to be all natural, whatever it might be, and we're just going to get all the children that God want to give us. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I mean, the Bible does say, um, what does it say? God gave a command, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. So, hey, if you want to take that literally and just have as many kids as you want, I don't think it's a sin. Um, however, um, I do think that it's okay to limit how much you do multiply. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> One of the, uh, and then one of the places I want to touch on this really quick where people will go to is Genesis chapter 38. And this is the story of Onan and uh, Tamar, where, uh, so Judah, let me see here. It's a story about, it's called Leverite marriage, okay? And so Judah's son, uh, Ur, uh, was married to Tamar. Ur was put to death because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And then uh, it's Genesis chapter 38, verse 8. It says, Then Judah said to Onan, 
Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. So the concept of Levite marriage is very common in, in ancient times and, and uh, in this culture is that if a woman was married to a man, the man died, it was the duty of his brother to take the widow as his wife and to um, support her and the firstborn son uh, from that union would actually legally be the descendant of the deceased brother. So the land that that brother owned, um, all of the, the inheritance that was part of that family would go to this son that was from the Levite marriage. So the guy, in this case, Onan, who took the widow, um, it would actually be a liability to him and his household and his, because he would have to basically support this other, this, you know, wife. And then all the, basically the inheritance and the, um, you know, that his would be the heir. It wouldn't be his heir. It would be his dead brother's heir. So um, what, what people say, uh, say when they, you know, they look at this story and they go, well, see, God doesn't want you to, he's using an ancient form of uh, a birth control here, right? He says, see, uh, he put him to death because he was wicked, because he did that. But it really wasn't because of, um, you know, spilling on the ground was the wickedness. The wickedness was that he, um, he was selfishly engaging in sexual intercourse with his dead brother's wife, but he, by doing this, he was refusing to grant her and thereby his deceased brother an heir. And so that was the wickedness in the sight of the Lord um, in this case. So I don't think that that can really hold water for a case against birth control. Um, one other, an, another verse I'd like to point us to really quick is Psalm 127, verse 4 and 5. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So blessed is the man who has a lot, of, a lot of kids, right? Whose quiver is full of them. But you know what? Sometimes your quiver is just full. There's only so many arrows you can fit in your quiver, right? <laughs> can I get an amen? <laughs> okay, but um, the, the next one here is is a answer to this question. I actually heard taught a while back that I thought was a really great answer. So I can't claim any uh, credit for, you know, picking this out of scriptures, but it's pretty cool. In Genesis chapter one, verse one, it says this, that God created the heavens and the earth. So what we know about God from this verse is that A, he created everything and that B, he is creative, right? God is creative. He creates things. Um, a little bit further down in verses 26 and 27, uh, it says this. Oh, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And then in 27, it says, so God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. So we know that we are made in the image of God. And in the same way that God is creative, we are also creative people. God has made us all creative in a special way, but in the, um, I guess the one thing we all have in common is that 
God has given us a part in creating life, amen, with sexual intercourse. Um, God is the giver of life. God creates life in the womb. He creates um, body, soul, and spirit. But, you know, he's given us a part in it, right? And um, so he's created everything. He's created us. He's made us creative in order to be fruitful and multiply. Um, But what I want to point us to is in chapter 2, verse 1 of Genesis, It says, thus, this is speaking of after God created everything, it said, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So what's interesting to note about this is even though God is creative and God is able to do anything he wants, essentially, there came a time where he was finished, where and do you guys think that he could have created more? More animals, more plants, more planets, more whatever he wanted to. I believe he could have. I believe he's all-powerful. But he didn't do that. He decided, no, we're done. I'm going to finish. And in the same way, sometimes when it comes to having children, for some of us, the work is finished. It's time to say, we're going to rest. <laughs> right? <laughs> And uh, so stop and rest. And <laughs> I don't believe there's a problem with uh, using birth control, whatever, whatever form that might be. So that, uh, that's all I have to say about that. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> I'll give you an amen. <laughs> all right. Um, let's see. All right, here's a good one. This is for Will. If someone is born uh, gay or transgender, who am I to argue with their personal identity? What does the Bible say about this? So we had a, a list of questions, and this one was just, like, searing into me. And <clears throat> not that I have got any experience with it or anything, but or even have any close friends that struggle with this, but, um, but I think it's, it's something that we can get this conversation started with, especially, and it, I mean, for tonight, you know, we're, we're not going to have time to go into every avenue or every rabbit hole that we can go, go through with this topic, um, you know, with the question, is someone born gay or transgender, um, you know, definitions, uh, if, if you're sexually attracted to the people of one's own sex, um, Transgender describe people whose gender identity is different from the gender at birth, and uh, and gender identity your inner knowledge of your gender. Um, you know, after doing all my research, guys, it's I couldn't find a particular say, text saying, "Can you be born born this way?" But I can give you many texts that you know about practicing homosexuality. You know, that is, the Bible is very clear about that. Genesis 19 speaks of uh, homosexuality in Sodom. Jude uh, speaks of the same, the uh, immorality and the sexual perversion in Sodom. Leviticus 18 says, do not practice sexual homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman is a detestable sin, like intense, intense dislike. 
So, I mean, it's, it is very clear. I mean, Romans 1 talks about the depravity of man, and one of those, and one of that is homosexuality. Um, it says that they were consumed with passion for one another. And so, I mean, this is not a new topic. This has been a topic that's been around. Um, and the Bible says it's a sin to act out of self, uh, lustful desires. And, you know, it goes a bit further in Matthew 5. Jesus says, um, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. With her in his heart. And so, I mean, it, it goes deeper than say, are you just born this way? I mean, you could be born many ways. If you're born angry, does that give you a right to be angry all the time? You know, if you're born a murderer, does that mean that you're going to grow up to be killing people? I mean... These behaviors, like, we got to be careful and say, is just because I'm born this way, does it give me a right to be able to do this? You know, and in this particular question, you know, the Bible is clear that it, it is a sin um, as far as practicing homosexuality. Um, so the second part of that question is, um, who am I to argue with their identity? So, I mean, assuming this question is coming from maybe... Um, someone in their own family, a loved one, perhaps. Um, you know, when you see sin in your own family, I mean, the most loving thing you could do is to tell this person that they are in sin. I mean, when we talk about this, uh, I think about, it's about people, right? I mean, we talk about debt. It's, it's dealing with money and, and something. We're talking about phones. Like, we're dealing with idols, but when when we're dealing with people, it's like there's a soul there, right? I mean, in, I mean, I could keep, you know, something that comes up is, is homosexuality, like if you're practicing homosexuality, like is that going to send you to hell? And I would, I would say, you know, just your separation from God is what's going to cause you to go to hell. You know, I mean, this is, this is, like, this is one sin. I mean, we, if you read Romans, it's going to give you a list of sins that are there. But it's just for, I mean, I've seen it many times where, like, this is one that really stands out. I mean, this is one sin that we got to talk about. And this is the one sin that people really land on. And in reality, like, I mean, this, yeah, it goes against what God's word says but we tend to forget about all the other sins. I mean, we talk about God's design in, like Eric was saying, you know, he created. He created male and he created female. God's design was for two genders. And God also created a union, a marriage union. And God also created sex to be a part of this marriage union. And when you deviate from anything apart from that, whether it's male or female and you add to it, or if it's a marriage between a man and a woman, and you add to that marriage marriage um, description, or if God created sex to be fruitful and multiply, and you add to that, I mean, anything you add to it or deviate from it, it is destructive. And, and so when, when we talk about, like, who am I to argue with their identity, I say, again, it's like the most loving thing you can do is to tell this person they're, they're in sin, um, and 
like I said, like this is something to get the conversation started. Like if you guys got more questions about this, um, I'd say send them in. And if you disagree with me, send that in as well. But, um, you know, I... <laughs> Here, I'll, I was just going to add something really quick. So um, one of the things I think, like, because so the, the question automatically goes back to, like, like in just going back to the original question was, yeah. like, so if I'm born, if I feel this way, like I've always felt this way, and so I must have been born this way, and so that must make it right. And so... What I would argue with that is, well, and, and from a, a Christian standpoint, from what the Bible says, we, we all know that we are born with a tendency to do the opposite of what God says is right in a lot of ways. And I would argue even a non-religious person can see that pretty easily because um, you're, I've used this example before. Babies are born with a tendency to violently throw a fit when they don't get their way. And had they were not so small, they would absolutely murder you and everyone else and kill everything around them and destroy things because that is their very nature. And, and nobody in their right mind would say that's a good quality. That's a good, that's a right way to react to not getting your way or to becoming angry. It's something that uh, as parents, we're responsible for training out of them as they grow up. You know, we're born with, so we're born with a lack of self-control. We're born with selfishness. We're born with all these characteristics that the world in general would say these are not good. You know, these are not morally good characteristics of people. We got to learn the right way to behave and, and unlearn these things. So just because you're born with a tendency to want to do something does not make it right. And that's where we need God because God who made all of us has defined what is right and what's wrong. And he's done that in his word. And so, otherwise, we're just kind of, you know, making decisions on our own as to what feels right or what doesn't feel right. And there's no real, no person that actually defines that or no absolute in that. But God is that absolute. He's told us what's right. He's told us what's wrong. And so, that we need him first to, to come into our lives to, to help open our eyes because Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that our heart's deceitful. We can't trust it. We can't trust ourselves. We don't even know what's right or wrong. So we need God to come into our lives to open our eyes to be able to understand what's right or wrong. And then we need him to help us understand his word so we can know those things that are bad for us and those things that are good for us, okay? And the Bible, as Will already pointed out, clearly talks about back in Genesis, when he's creating man and woman, there's two genders. That's what he created. And he created them to be together as one, as a husband and wife. And that's, that's um, reiterated all the way throughout the Bible by Jesus and by Paul. So that, there's no other sexes that are talked about. And then there's multiple places where homosexuality is defined as a type of sexual immorality. And I like to point that out because it gets a lot of press in making it sound like it's, it's some sort of worse sin than other sins. But the reality is it's just, it's sin. All sin is bad. And so it's the same as uh, the Bible talks about sexual immorality, uh, adultery or incest or having sex outside of marriage. They're, they're all in the same category. It's not just homosexuality. And so all of this sin in general is what we need to be saved from, from uh, with, through faith in Jesus. And so uh, what it comes down to is, is, is bringing it back to the root of the problem, which we're all born with and we need to be set free from. And, and that's just one of the many different things that we need God to help us with, you know. Yeah, amen. So.
you can go ahead if you have anything else to add. Yeah, just like what you said about how it's just a sin. It's not, it's not like it's a special category of sin, but it's just a sin. Like, you know, if I say, if I was born a, uh, if I, excuse me, not born, if I was a drug addict and I just said, well, I was just born this way, you know, there people probably wouldn't say, oh, well, that's, that's cool. If you're born that way, just go ahead and do it. Or I'm have a propensity to steal things and I'm a thief. And um, an argument to stay out of jail wouldn't be, well, I was just born this way. No, they would throw you in jail. And the fact that, the, I think the problem is, is that this is what a lot of people think, that maybe don't have a biblical worldview or um, a biblical background at all, as they go, because what our culture and what our society is pushing and telling everyone is that, well, you were born this way. You can't help it. It's okay. And really, the question is someone, if someone is born this way, who am I to argue with them? It's not really the right question the way I see it, because no one is born gay or transgender. Someone may be born, we're all born sinful, like Chris said. Someone may be born with a propensity to homosexuality, just in the same way someone may be born with a propensity to be a drug addict or a drunkard or an adulterer, or whatever. But when we start saying, well, uh, homosexuality and this transgender thing is different, you were born this way, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's somehow allowable because you can't change it. Um, the fact is, it's true, you can't change it, only Jesus can. But it's in the same category as all these other sins, drunkenness, you know, thievery, whatever you want to fill in the blank. Um, it's not God's will for any of us to be engaged in any of these things. We're born sinners. That's period. But um, there, I don't think there's a, you can say there's a special category for, oh, I was born gay, so I can't help it. Um, but our, like I said, our culture, it's easy to believe that and say, well, if, you know, this person says they were born that way. I guess they must have been when really that's just not true. I would even say uh, for what you guys were saying about having the propensity or a bend towards certain th sin, it's like the Bible says that we were not just having a bend towards sin, but we were a slave to sin. And, you know, I mean, that, this, that's something to consider. Um, and, you know, the Bible also says that we need to be born again. You know, it's a spiritual rebirth. It's a change of heart. I mean, that's the, that's the transformation that we're looking for um, I say we as in, as in believers of Christ. You know, I mean, if you're listening to this and, and you're not a believer of Christ, like, hey, there, there's freedom from the sin that you're in. Um, and you can get that by being born again, understanding your own sin, understanding that Jesus died on the cross for that sin, and, and then a chance to, be, to repent and to follow after God. Uh, Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Um, and so, and, and then about identity, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, uh, like you said, Chris, like finding your identity in God, um, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And Romans 6, for if we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 
You know, you know what I like about what you pointed out there on the identity thing is that Satan's really good at, at, at trying to trick us to sell ourselves short in our identity and trying to find it in something that's never going to fulfill us the way we're looking for it to do. And for, you know, it's, it, Eric was just saying, when we say things like, well, this is just my identity, this is the way I was born, in essence, what you're cheapening your identity to is your sexuality. Yeah. And God says, no, 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 you're so much more than that. I mean, that's the reality. And if you're willing to let him show you, because that is surely gonna disappoint you just like anything else in this world. You're not gonna find your identity and your sexuality. You'll be disappointed. God has so much more. And you know, the other thing I would say is, um, you know, there's no, I would not say to somebody that's like struggling with um, any type of sexual immorality that you, you gotta change before you come to church. That, that, that's, that's not how it works um, for any sin in your life. Because as I said earlier, you know no different until God comes into your life. What I would say is that can you admit in humility that you're not perfect in any areas of your life, that you're not a perfect person, and because of that, that what God says is that you, you need him to perfect you through his son Jesus. Like you're not a perfect person, and that imperfection separates you from God. That imperfection is what is called sin whenever we disobey God. And because God's perfect, he, he can't be in the presence of imperfection without justly dealing with it. And so he desperately wants to have a relationship with you, but that can only come if you're perfect and you're made perfect by Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, dying for your sins, all sins, all sins of mankind, in receiving in exchange his righteousness, his perfection. So through faith in Jesus, you're made perfect. You come to God as you are, and then God starts helping you understand the things in your life that you didn't even know were harming you, that were wrong. And there's a whole gauntlet of them, every single one of us. It's not just one thing. It's like, it's an unending list that God starts revealing to us and then helping us get healed from and cleaned up of so that we're made to be more like Jesus and we can experience the better things he intends for us through living rightly according to his word. And so that, that's the same for anyone. It, it doesn't matter if you're struggling with, like I said, um, sex, some, any type of sexual sin or, or being a thief or being you know, like angry or, or you know, whatever, a gossip, whatever it might be. All the, it's all the same. Jesus is the answer and who we need. And it's just being humble enough to admit that, man, I'm not perfect and this resonates with me that I'm not finding what I'm looking for in, in these things that I think I should be. So I, I, I need to go to God to help me with this. I wanna know who God is and being willing to you know, go to him as you are and with this open mind of him revealing to you who he is, not who you want him to be, who he is. And then he will come into your life uh, through faith in his son, Jesus. And, and he will help you understand truth for the first time. So... I really like that context of we're just talking about sin in general, and this is a piece of that. So I was just going to say, oh, just in case anyone's watching or listening, or you've got family or friends or stuff, some of us do, you know, that are facing those things. I, the church has gotten a rap for sure, and maybe sometimes deservedly, depends on the context, that we've um, been unkind, you know, and, and kind of othered people and that. So um, although we're going to say what God has said in his word, uh, I think what we're trying to say is we welcome Anybody that wants to seek the Lord and yeah. is willing to say, I'm imperfect, right? Because join the club. Uh, it may look a little different in your life than mine. Um, Luke 9, 23 and 24, two verses that are terribly 
compelling to me for my own life. It says, Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, the instrument of your own death and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So sometimes people will say the church's uh, you know, viewpoint on some of these things is exclusionary and you know, heightens these things. Like I think these guys have done a good job of saying this is a category of things. But self-denial is a, um, is a part of discipleship for all believers. Right? We're denying those things that are a part of our old nature to become something new. And the loss that's involved there in 24 when he says you've got to lose your life for my sake is normative. It just looks different in everybody's life. So if you're watching, you've got somebody, I would love to, any of us would love to talk with you. It may look different in my life than yours perhaps, but I've got definite areas of death and self-denial for myself that um, I'd be happy to walk with you through that. So you guys would be. Uh, last question we had was, uh, I think Eric was gonna tackle this, is climate change real? <laughs> and what does the Bible say about it, if anything? This is a uh, personal favorite of mine. <laughs> kind of a hot topic in the days we live in, of course. We've all heard about climate change and how the world we know it is coming to an end and how we must get rid of all our fuel-powered vehicles and shut off all the farms and cows and all that because of the methane. And the list goes on and on and on. But <clears throat> the question is, what is it? Is it even real? What does the Bible say about it? And then I would also, I kind of want to add like, um, what should a Christian worldview be on climate change? Like, what's our viewpoint on it? What do we, you know, tell people about it? Like, because a lot of times I've, I've like wondered about this before, like, is it real? Is it not real? Do we care? Like, what's the, you know, how, how do we engage as Christians with someone who maybe is, is very genuinely upset about this or worried about this, you know? Um, and so, I would just like to start out by saying climate change is real. And before you start throwing rocks at me, <laughs> it's actually taught in the scriptures. Um, and it's found in, first of all, I want to say Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who, did, who dwell therein. So just that one little verse right there, I like that, because God has control. God owns the earth right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, everything. That means the climate too. So God is in control over earth and the climate. Okay. The first recorded instance of climate change can be found in the book of Genesis. And I would direct you to uh, chapter two, verse five. I can't even find it. It says, uh, let's see, it's the second part of verse five. It says, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, verse 6, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So evidently, in the pre-flood climate, atmosphere, world, whatever you want to call it, it didn't rain. There was some kind of mist, maybe you'd call it a dew, that came up evidently from the ground in some way, shape, or form. And that's what watered the whole face of the ground. Um, and then in Genesis chapter 6... Verse 17, we have increasing corruption on the earth. God looks down and sees all the people and every, all, the, all their thoughts. It says, uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man and the great was earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then down in verse 17, he says, behold, I will bring a flood of waters. And, he, and uh, we know that God judged 
the earth, save Noah and his family. And then I would direct you to chapter 7, verse 12. It says, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. This is the first time that rain had fallen on the earth since the creation of the earth. Um, and so right here, just we see no rain, a mist, and then all of a sudden it starts raining. And there's a massive flood. There's a fundamental change in the climate of the earth at this point in time. And I don't know a lot about it, but uh, evident they, I, I know a lot of uh, scholars and people looking at this stuff. They say that the composition of the air actually changed drastically um, from the pre-flood climate to you know post-flood, and that um, it probably had something to do with the extinction of the dinosaurs. I heard something that, uh, I guess the T-Rex, something about the air, how much oxygen was in the air and the different components in the air. The T-Rex, when today's, um, in the air we breathe today, his nostrils, his nasal uh, passages wouldn't have been large enough to actually get enough oxygen for an animal that size to survive. So I'm not a, you know, a uh, biologist or paleontologist or whatever, but just some interesting things like that to think about. So there's a fundamental change in the climate at this point in time. Um, something else I'd like to point out is that first is that climate change is real. It has happened in the past. Is that this first instance of climate change was not caused by man, nor by the burning of fossil fuels. <laughs> Although they, it had something to do with the dinosaurs. I, um, so, <clears throat> the second instance we find in the Bible of climate change is in 2 Peter chapter 3, and this is a coming event, a future event. So, we've seen it play out in the past, the book of Genesis, and in the book of 2 Peter, um, we have a description. No, I, I got it here. We have a description of what the climate will be like um, in the end times. And so I'm just going to read kind of a, a chunk here for you. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It says, but the same word, uh, the heavens, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? The climate, we know, has changed in the past. The climate, we see these studies and all these things happening. Evidently, scientists say that the climate is changing presently and it's getting warmer. And from this section of Scripture, I can come to the reasonable conclusion that they must be right because when Jesus comes back, it's going to get really hot. <laughs> I'm talking melt with a fervent heat. And you go through this section here, um, 
It says uh, stored up for fire, burned up. It uses the word dissolved three times, set on fire, melt, burn twice. So we know that in the end times, um, when we talk about, uh, when you say climate change, you know, I would, I would say the, the Bible refers to it, you know, it says, talks about the heavens and the earth being burned, melted, dissolved, um, that, yeah, it's changing and it's going to go away and it's going to get burned up and it's going to be dissolved. And that um, in verse 13, I love this, it says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Does climate change exist? Yeah, I, I, I would say it's reasonable to say from a scriptural standpoint that it does exist. Um, I would add to that that our, uh, let's say, let me see, our, the way our culture looks at climate change. When, when someone says climate change, you automatically think of uh, carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere causing a rise in temperature, right? Man-made climate change. Does that exist? I don't know. I personally don't think it does. I think the climate just has natural changes. God is in charge of the climate. Is climate change man-made? Again, my opinion, you can throw it out. It's not in the scriptures. I personally don't believe so. But that's not the point. The point is this. Does man-made climate change exist? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Because the heavens and the earth are going to be burned up and pass away. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So the only thing we need to be worrying about is how many people are going to be on that new heaven and new earth. How many people can we share the truth with, share the truth of the gospel with, and tell about this new heaven and new earth we're waiting for? Because that's what we're waiting for. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, let me see, I'm not encouraging or... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Like approving of, you know, destroying the planet, polluting the planet. I think we should be good stewards of this planet that God has given us while we're here. Um, but our hope is not on this planet and in this earth. Our hope is a new heaven and the new earth. So I think that's just a, at least that's just kind of the way I wrap my, my mind around it is this is just a good um, biblical way to look at the issue, to look at the topic, to maybe talk with people about it. Like, oh, it's funny you bring that up because the Bible actually says climate change does exist. But, uh, you know, there's, and, and yeah, it's definitely global warming is legit. It's going to get really hot and it's going to get burned up and there's going to be new earth. So believe in Jesus and man, come to the new earth. You won't have to worry about, you know, carbon dioxide emissions. So, uh, I think, uh, I think that's, that's kind of what, uh, what I landed on there, is it just, it really is not an issue that we should be... Consumed with. What? Consumed with. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's okay to maybe, you know, we can pay attention to it or whatever, but it's not something we need to be consumed with or worried about because our hope is in the new heaven and new earth. Yeah. Amen. I got a follow-up question to the birth control one that I think is really good because this is an important distinguation I think we need to make. Um, It says, is a line crossed when an embryo is destroyed? This question is based on the belief that a person's life begins at conception. Are there not different contraceptions that use this outcome? Wouldn't 
the pregnancy clinic have good counsel for these important questions? Um, I would say yes. Um, when we're speaking of birth control, we're speaking of it in a preventative measure. Um, and I, I, I don't even know if like, I mean, most of those things that are used to, in a sense, abort the baby, I think they refer to as, I could be wrong, but like, like the, the abortion pill or, you know, abortion, we're, we're not talking about that in that, um, God's clear in his word that life begins at concession. One of the passages that came to mind was Psalm 139, where David says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together, talking about God in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. So from the very beginning of, of conception, like we believe there's life, like God's, you know, creating a baby, a life. So I, I would say, yes, that's, that's not the type of birth control that we're talking about. Yeah, um, yeah go ahead. So I've done a little reading about this. I'm not an expert, clearly. I think the suggestion of the uh, poster there about um, going to the a clinic for information would be a good idea. But uh, the, there's this the way the classification is, are they abortifacient? Are they some uh, drug that would produce the abortion, the ending of a fertilized egg, right? And so the, the mechanism for that that some people are concerned about is there are some drugs that apparently make the womb inhospitable for a fertilized egg. And so that the, what essentially happens is you have a baby who starves to death because it cannot implant in the uterine wall of the, of the mother. Not a doctor. So um, which drugs do that, how that works, that's something you would want to research. But yeah, I, I would see a moral distinction there between what we would consider traditional birth control, barrier methods, so scores of things versus um, things that would cause a baby to die. Is that, is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Got it? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, I think that was the question. All right. Well, um, any, we got a little bit of time. Any follow-up questions from the audience? Or? All right. Well, if there's no other questions, you guys have anything to add? We'll call it good. Well, we thank you guys for joining us tonight. And uh, we, again, encourage you guys to submit questions. There's, there's no dumb question. And even some of these are ones that, I mean, you could be a Christian for a long time and just even maybe you've heard it something before, like something said about birth control or something, but never have kind of known where it actually talks about it. So it's beneficial to know these things. We want to know why we believe what we believe. So if you have a question, ask it, and we'll do our best to answer it. Go ahead. Yeah, we want some real zingers. So uh, try to think of something. Eric wants some real zingers. <laughs> no, actually, I was just telling uh, Michael before we started, or maybe it was Chris, I don't know, but uh, that when I, when I first became a believer and um, I first started, I was just reading the Bible and I had different questions about different things, like just very practical things. And when I first got, and when, when I started asking some questions like that, sometimes I would get answers like, oh, man, we'll just, we'll figure it out when we get to heaven. I don't know, man. And I was just like, well, that's, you know, that's lame. I don't, <laughs> or, or, uh, uh, just cause, cause I was a baby believer, you know, obviously there are some things that we just, we're not going to know that we are going to have to wait till we get to heaven. But, but it's kind of like sometimes, sometimes people say, oh, it's just by faith, bro, man, you just, just trust the Lord and stuff. And I'm like a baby believer didn't, I didn't know anything about what it even meant to trust God. And I was just like, 
you don't even know what you're talking about. You know, that's what I thought. But when I started um, finding some resources and finding people that actually knew the word of God, said, oh, let me show you this verse. Here, just check out. This is what the Bible says. I started really realizing that, wow, like the Bible really does have the answers for everything. Like it's real. this is real. Like this is something we can stand on and look to. And um, just something that the Lord has really just blessed me with is like, yes, we can look to the Bible. It's not just some, well, we'll just figure it out. I don't know. Trust the Lord, bro. And, you know, sometimes we do have to trust the Lord. But there's also so much practical things in the Word of God. So um, just want to encourage all you guys in that. Ask some questions. I have questions all the time. So, And I'm sorry that I still can't answer whether Adam had a belly button or not. I do not know. <laughs> all right. Hey, Will, you want to close us in prayer? And... Uh, We'll end this evening. You can use the mic so they can hear you. Father, we thank you for tonight. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the guidance that um, it provides. And Lord, like Eric was saying, um, you have the answers that we need, and we we have the word to look into. And um, thank you for these guys that spent the time to, to research this. And Lord, um, we just thank you for another evening. God, we pray that um, you were glorified tonight and Bless your day in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Have a good evening.